what we want is intimacy. What we want is closeness. We believe that healthy relationships are ones where mutual needs are considered and differing needs are negotiated. Welcome to Unleashed. I'm Colleen Pilar, a dog trainer fascinated by people. Dogs bring out the best in us. Your dog thinks you're awesome because you are kind, thoughtful, generous, playful. In each episode of Unleashed, I'll choose one behavior trait that dogs and people share and interview a fascinating person to talk about how that trait appears in dogs and in people. Then we'll explore ways that you can more fully embody the trait so that you can show up at work and at home as the amazing person your dog knows you to be. Are you ready to be unleashed? My guest today is Dr. Leslie Stewart, an assistant professor of counseling at Idaho State University. Hi, Leslie. Thanks so much for joining me today on Unleashed. I'm really excited to be talking to you. Can you tell me a little bit about your background and the work you do at Idaho State? Yes, of course. Um, first of all, thank you for having me. Uh, I love opportunities to work with you. You're one of my very favorite uh, humans, and I'm a, I'm a huge fan of your um, of your training program. So I am I am honored to be here. Thank you. Uh, yeah, a little bit about uh, about my work. I am uh, I'm an assistant professor of counseling here at uh, Idaho State University in lovely Pocatello, Idaho. And my clinical area of specialty before I became a professor was um, working with survivors of trauma, specifically um, and most often sexual trauma and sexual violence. And so the idea of consent and uh, how important that is in our intimate relationships has always been an important theme in my work. Uh, and it's, it's become important in other areas of my work uh, as I help to train the next generation of counselors in helping them understand consent culture and how consent is so important in all aspects of our healthy relationships, um, of, of course, sexually too, but in all of our non-sexual relationships too, this idea of consent and what does it mean and um, how can we incorporate that culture into our healthy relationships on a day-to-day basis? So that's what consent culture actually means, like fully understanding the nuances of it and, and how to adopt it? Is, there, is that what consent culture is? Yeah, I think um, I'm, I'm not sure that consent culture has a, um, a textbook definition as of right now. Maybe that's something I need to work on. Um, <laughs> In your spare time? But yes, I, I think consent culture is the absolute antithesis of uh, something that I grapple with in my clinical work, which um, is known in popular media as rape culture. Oh. Um, and oh. so it's antithesis of that. It's someone choosing an interaction on their own terms and the other parties respecting boundaries, mm-hmm. uh, respecting another person's right to... Uh, be autonomous, the right to choose. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, that's very important in our sexual relationships, but that's also important in our friendships and our family relationships and in our relationships with our coworkers and um, every single client 
uh, that I work with, the idea of consent to the counseling process and in the counseling relationship is just crucial. That's really interesting. I'm, I'm interested to learn a lot more about that. So what, what got you into counseling? What drove you in that direction? Uh, well, I, I think it's all the horse's fault. The horse's uh, fault? Yes, <laughs> it's all the horse's fault. I, um, uh, growing up, I, um, I rode, trained, and, and showed hunter-jumper uh, horses on the national circuit. And uh, I always had a soft spot for the horses that um, had what humans perceive as, as behavioral uh, problems. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, a lot of these horses ended up, uh, interestingly enough, being the most talented um, in the in the show ring, and the more I got to know these horses that would um, I would get to know because of the issues in their behavior, the more I would realize that there isn't a behavior problem. There's a communication problem. It's so often so, the case. Yeah, most of the time, um, a good dentist checkup, a good dental checkup for the horse, um, a good farrier to take a look at the horse's feet and how their shoes are put on. Um, and a good um, overall health exam from a, from a veterinarian would solve a lot of the problems. Mm-hmm. Um, if that didn't work, looking at how the equipment was fitted and how comfortable the horse was with the equipment you were using would take care of a lot of the problem. And again, if, if that didn't work, a lot of times it was the relationship between the horse and the people involved in that horse's lives. And there was some kind of need that that horse was trying to communicate that the humans weren't understanding and so the horse uh, advocated for itself the best way it, it knew how, and that would be to be um, what we perceive as uh, ornery or, yeah. uh, or a problem. Right. And so often that behavior that we're describing as, you know, bad behavior really is a self-protective behavior. It's a, it's a mechanism to say, I am so not comfortable with what's happening here. And it's not yeah. really that they're doing it to us. They're doing it for themselves. They're like, I, I need to stop this situation. Yeah. Yeah. And I think um, I began to see parallels um, of that with people and understand that, hey, you know what? People aren't aren't that different. Most of the time when we are having behaviors that are perceived by others as problematic, it's um, either because we're in a lot of pain mm-hmm. um, or because our we're having a communication difficulty with um, our social support system or, or something uh, related to that. And uh, so I think that fueled my interest in psychology classes and ultimately um, becoming a, a professional counselor. Is, uh, I think I view my clients very much the same way. And okay, well, tell me what the problem is and let's figure out where you're hurting and how we can make it better. Mm-hmm. Well, that sounds great. And that's honestly such a good spot to be coming from the, you know, accepting where you are and really trying to start there instead of expecting someone to start in a different spot where we so often do. (laughs) Here's where I think step one is. And the person or the animal is like, no, that is, that is at least step 12. (laughs) That is not where I could be right now. So did you work with lots of horses in your background doing this? Like, I mean, were you the person that they said, oh, this one's difficult. Let's see what Leslie can do. Sometimes. Yeah. I, I did a lot of that. And, um, a lot of the horses that I ended up with um, as my own um, riding partners were naughty um, to begin with, um, uh, difficult for other people to manage. Uh, one, one in particular um, who lived to be uh, who lived to his mid thirties. We just lost him a couple of years ago, but uh, to his dying day, this horse was uh, 
well, he was a character, but mm-hmm. but we understood each other, um, and we had a, a really close uh, relationship. I sort of considered him my brother um, for, I mean, 20 plus years. We were very, very close. We understood each other well. We had a great working relationship, and um, the other humans in his life who understood him in context um, had great success with him. He was a just a magnificent animal. Yeah. It's, it's such an important piece, just starting from this point of trust. And there are lots of trainers who really work on that concept. And particularly with any sort of uh, grooming issues, any of that, where we can set up a situation in which the animal, uh, in, my, in my experience, dogs, but I've seen videos of all sorts of animals, where they can say yes or no. Like, I would like to, you know, trim your nails. Yes or no. And if they say no, then it's no. And if they mm-hmm. say yes, we go until they say, okay, now, now we need a break. And Sharag Patel, I hope I said his name right, um, has some interesting videos on that. He calls it the bucket game. And basically the, the idea is as long as the dog is looking at the bucket, he's saying yes. And as soon as the dog – the bucket has treats. Um, as soon as the dog says, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about you more than the bucket – I need to look at you, then that's a no. That that would be the moment that we would say, I, I need to back off and, and ease up a little. So how do you see consent in, in your work with dogs? Because I know you use dogs in some of your counseling practice. And then also you have other animals you use. I'm interested to hear about that. The first, uh, the first idea of this sort of consent culture that I conceptualize would be to um, challenge the term use. Um, so I think that's a frequent mistake that uh, that some people have in uh, colloquial languages. Uh, uh, animal-assisted therapy and counseling, we use a dog, we use mm-hmm. a rabbit, of course. Um, and I would challenge that. Um, the idea of using this animal for our personal gain doesn't really fit with that idea of consent culture. I partner with an animal to help me and my client reach our goals. We include an animal to help our students um, learn concepts and demonstrate techniques. Um, and the animal has the right to say yes, has the, has the right to say no. And I think that's the very first thing that clients and students get oriented to mm-hmm. when they meet the therapy animal. It's That's a great thing because you could argue that it's just semantics, but it's really not because we use <laughs> tools. And we use tools, we use things. Yes, it's a, it's a very interesting perspective on that. So I will be, I will be conscious of the words that I am using when I describe this from, from this point forward, I won't be perfect at it, but like everything we will learn as we go along, but you're right. Partnering with does imply much more of a a teamwork because it absolutely is teamwork and a voluntary participation, which is always my concern in any sort of animal assisted activities is that I really want to know that the animal is there and happy to be there. Yeah, exactly. And um, not only is it an animal welfare and an animal advocacy issue, which, of course, as um, as a counselor that practices animal-assisted interventions is really important to me, uh, it also communicates a lot to the clients and the students that I work with. So, for example, if I'm working with a rape survivor uh, to heal after a sexual trauma, what might it say to him or her if I am willing to use a living thing? to um, further my own goals. Mm-hmm. So I think the, the choices in our, in our language impact the way um, we relate with our animal um, partners as well as our, um, 
our human partners. And the idea of consent happens before they even meet the animal. Um, so clients and students must um, participate in an informed consent process before they ever meet um, a therapy animal, in which case we talk about um, why a provider or a, um, a professor might choose to include an animal, what benefits I think it might bring to our work together, um, what risks could possibly be involved for the human, um, because there are considerable risks involved. Uh, when you start including an animal, um, and then the opportunity to say, I understand the reason that you would like to do this, and I understand the risks involved, and I say yes. Uh, and then uh, once once the, the human participant uh, gives informed consent, once they say yes, then we talk about the animal's right to consent. Mm-hmm. Um, and what the animal's rights are to choose to interact or choose not to interact to choose to be touched, to choose not to be touched, um, in what ways they like to be touched. And we set very clear and firm boundaries about um, behaviors that are not permitted with the animal. So, for example, um, my clients and students are not permitted um, to restrain the animal's movement or to give a restricting hug. Mm -hmm. Because most animals don't like that. Right. Um, and, and to, most people want to do it at some point. To a cute, cuddly anything, I want to hug them. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but Sometimes I don't, but I want to. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think that's such a great piece to bring into the room when you're working with counseling clients and when you're working with um, counselor trainees is that I really want to hug this animal and I have not met a dog yet to date that I don't want to hug. Mm-hmm. Um, but understanding what that hug means to me is so different than what that hug might mean to the dog. And how can we get those relational needs met in a different way that mm -hmm. honors the position of both of us? Yes. So we, what we want is intimacy. What we want is closeness. Mm -hmm. And if I get that in a way that's just using the animal to get what I need, just forcing a hug on the animal, is that really the kind of relationship that I want to have? Is that really what I believe is a healthy relationship? And it's not. Uh, I really believe that healthy relationships are ones where mutual needs are considered um, and differing needs are negotiated. So how do you set that up with your students and your clients to, to allow them to invite the animals to participate with them in some way so that they understand whether or not the animal has consented? What kinds of things do you do? Uh, well, I think I, uh, the first thing I do is give them an orientation to the way that species sort of operates and perceives the world. So when I'm working with a rabbit, it looks very different than when I'm working with a dog or working with a horse. Um, and sort of giving them an idea. So the, the dog that I work with, um, very often will will come up and initiate interaction by placing her chin on you or sitting near you. She likes, she's a big fan of the lean. Mm -hmm. She likes initiate contact with a lean. So very often if she wants to be petted, if she wants to be touched, she'll come up and touch you. Um, and if you, if you want to ask her, you can call her name and sort of um, pat your knees and, um, use invitation body language and very often she'll respond and initiate touch. And so, um, we talk about how do we invite star, mm -hmm. um, to interact with us in a 
um, in a physical way. Mm-hmm. And if Star accepts, then we can reciprocate that interaction. Um, if Star says no, she doesn't want to do that, then the first thing we do is honor her choice. And the second thing we do, and I think this is what makes animal-assisted interventions above and beyond just a a positive interaction with an animal, is we actually process what that's like for you to hear no. Mm -hmm. For you to not get what you wanted from that animal. And Mm -hmm. what that means about you, what that means about um, your relationship. Because a lot of people carry uh, messages about themselves in the world that they um, attribute to that situation that can be really, really helpful to use um, for personal growth and in therapy. I think that's really valuable. That's something that I do with children a lot, where I talk about if a dog says no, when you ask if you want to pet, you know, that we te- I teach them how to tell if the dog said yes or no. And if the dog says no, that in most cases, it has nothing to do with you. It's not that you're not a good friend for dogs. It's that, yeah. it's that the dog is saying, not right now. I'm not interested. And then we go through with the kids a hundred reasons why if their friend came and knocked on the door, they might say, no, they didn't want to come out, you know. My grandma just came over. I just had dinner. I just came in. I'm tired. I have an opportunity to do this. There's a million reasons that aren't, I don't like you. But so often, if we get a no, we take it as a personal rebuff and it hurts our relationship. We're like, oh, well, they don't like me on a human level, but also on an animal to person level where we we take it so personally. And I think learning to to just sort of analyze each no and see, was that about me or was that about the situation has real value. Well, I think it helps a lot of uh, a lot of my clients who um, feel self-conscious or guilty setting those boundaries for themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, We're allowed to set boundaries about what we like and what we what we don't like. And um, we have the right to consent to interact and to not interact in, in a lot of ways and in our intimate relationships. And I think learning to respect the dog's choice and examine our reaction to the dog's choice when, when it says no allows us an opportunity to examine how we feel when we say no. Mm-hmm. And learning to accept that choice that the dog makes, is have, it's not personal. Mm-hmm. Um, and even if it is, that's where they are right now. Uh, and that's okay, can really help us transition into, well, maybe I am okay to set my own boundaries and to Mm -hmm. communicate my own needs to the people close to me. And um, if they respond to that in a way that um, is unwanted, then, you know, that's sort of their responsibility. Yeah. And that's a really difficult thing for so many people including me at times, figuring out the boundaries that I'm comfortable setting and the the lines I really want to draw and, and saying that's okay. You know, that, that it's all right. Cause we spend a lot of time thinking about, well, maybe they won't like it if, or this wouldn't be nice if, and you know, sometimes it's okay to just say, this is what I'm willing to do. And this is what I'm not willing to do. And here's the line. And I loved in your um, in your your family dog podcast, you had an, an episode on um, dogs experiencing stranger danger, uh, fear of strangers, mm-hmm. where there was a situation I, uh, with a dog where someone said, uh, "Well, can I pet your dog?" and and the suggested response, "Well, well, it's okay with me, but you'll have to ask the dog." Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I just I thought that was that really um, stood out to me um, as something that was really applicable to 
the way I like to work with animals in this particular way. Right. Because it, it isn't just my right to say yes for my dog. You know, I, yeah. I, I do feel very strongly that, you know, there are times that I will say no. And that applies for both of us. But <laughs> if, uh, if I say yes, he still has the right to say no. Um, and I think that that is an important thing for us to be thinking about. So from the, from the subject of consent, like really thinking about consent, I guess it's sort of easy for us to envision it in these examples where we're talking about our interactions with animals. But on a day-to-day basis in our actions with other adults, just regular interactions, how do you see consent playing a role and, and what are the benefits of being very conscious of thinking about it? Well, I think um, one of the things that we often walk around unaware of are our social positions in relation to others and where we might have positions of power, um, power and privilege. So, for example, um, coercion. Uh, This idea of coercion, if someone has more power than me in a social situation and I know they want me to do something, um, examining what that does to my willingness to just say yes, even though I don't want to. Mm -hmm. And so I think really being conscious of the power positions in our relationships and where we fall along that continuum is the first step. Um, And then examining what those positions of power might mean in terms of our ability to give consent and the other person that we're interacting with, their ability to give consent. So um, as much as my goal as um, a professional counselor is to make the counselor-client relationship as egalitarian as possible, there are still some issues of that power differential that are very difficult to get rid of. And so I need to understand that my client might feel coerced in some ways, even if that's not what I intended. Mm -hmm. Um, And they might be willing to say yes to, I mean, even things like behavioral experiments and counseling. Um, I had to be very careful about the way I invite that um, because I don't want my position to create um, a a feeling of coercion. Mm -hmm. Um. And I I think that's where that active consent is, is compliance does not equal consent. Yes. And and the whole idea of a position of power and whether or not we're thinking about it is an interesting angle because I was recently talking to somebody who was very frustrated that her boss emailed on the weekend. And her feeling was she probably needed to reply on the weekend because her boss was emailing on the weekend. And... That may or may not be what the boss was thinking. You know, the boss may or may not be thinking, I'm going to send this out and I expect a reply. It could be this is convenient for me at this time to send this message out. Um, But my friend was uncomfortable with even discussing it because of the slight difference in the power level, you know, that she felt like that was wrong. Uh, She did, in fact, discuss it with her boss and and her boss was horrified. She said, you know, I just when I think of things, I just to get it off my mind, I shoot it out in an email. I had no idea that you were thinking about these things on the weekend. And I'm so, so sorry. Don't look at your email until Monday mornings. But um, the boss did wind up actually changing her style because it was difficult for, and it wasn't just my friend, but for, you know, for the, for the staff to feel like, 
you know, well, it came in on Friday evening. I'm not answering till Monday. That's awkward. And it's that position of power piece that just really hadn't been taken into account at all. And uh, in a lot of cases, these kinds of things can't be completely avoided or or prevented. Um, So it sounds like the boss in the situation was at least doing something really right and that the employee felt comfortable to discuss it. Yes. And then they came to some mutual agreement that met both of their needs, that worked for both of them, um, where the one party developed an awareness of how they were coming across to the other party. Mm -hmm. And that was accepted. And, And I think that's really crucial to this idea of consent in our relationships is being willing to to both give and receive feedback in that way mm-hmm. about how we might be influencing um, the other people around us outside of our awareness. Yes. I, I think those relationships with animals can serve as a powerful model and a powerful metaphor. Um, so the idea that star, sapphire, celestial pup of wonder, um, <laughs> her consent is really important to me in the classroom and in the counseling room um, models to my client that their consent is important to me. And I can say it all day long. I can talk about consent is important to me all day long, but it's not the same as me actually modeling it every day. Mm -hmm. And really showing that you walk the talk, you know, that here I am saying this is important. And then little tiny things of how I'm treating you and how I'm treating this animal matter. And in addition to Star, you've got two bunnies that do this, right? Yes, I have um, Hazel and Killer. And so I would think that for them, safety is is a hugely paramount issue mm-hmm. because so often bunnies, you know, they're a prey animal. They can be easily frightened by some of the things that people do. Yes, we are their natural predator. Bunnies are on the menu for um, a lot of humans. And bunnies have not forgotten that. <laughs> bunnies haven't, uh, even though you told them. Yeah. Here, you have a name and, and friends. Yeah, and they, they have not. And actually, um, Killer and Hazel are um, sort of celebrity guest lecturers in the um, cultural cross-cultural counseling class um, because we're able to talk about um, how someone who's different from you might perceive the world. And it's a great sort of non-defensive, non-scary way mm-hmm. to talk about historical trauma. Um, so the bunny, the first thing the bunny sees is this thing could eat me mm-hmm. because they have not forgotten that they've been on the menu for us for millennia. Um, and it's something we don't even think of. Right. Um, and so the idea that we need to take, um, you know, cultural trauma and historical trauma into consideration in our relationships, the bunnies are really helpful with that. But the very first thing that you've got to do with a rabbit, if you wish to build a relationship with it. Um, is to convince it that you're not going to hurt it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's one of the reasons I, um, when when I'm able to really prefer to include one of the rabbits, um, if we're debriefing a client immediately after a crisis or immediately after um, a violent event, because we're able to talk about what do you think this rabbit might need to feel safe? And the client can express that to me and in a lot of ways they can express to me what they might need to feel safe with me mm-hmm. without having to directly confront that mm-hmm. um, at a vulnerable time. I think that's a really powerful thinking tool. I mean from your perspective of really listening to your client and understanding but also helping 
the the victim of the trauma to to take a step sideways from the trauma and just think about something else and really focus on how can I make this animal feel safe it it's it's a wonderful idea because the whole sense of control I think that's what increases our feelings of trust and safety so being asked first your opinion gives you a little bit of a sense of control but then talking about like we really want to set this situation up in a way that works tells this person you do have some control here and that is something that animals and people are always looking at you know am i powerless here or do i have some control over what's going on and that whole trust and safety thing is the only way we ever move forward yeah yeah and there's um there's some really powerful work being done um with uh equine assisted counseling uh and survivors of trauma uh, both um military trauma uh like combat related trauma as well as sexual trauma mm-hmm. uh, and it's a it's a similar metaphor that can be so powerful in that the horse is an animal of prey mm-hmm. and horses did at one point uh exist on our menu um and so we are a natural predator for them and so if i were to introduce you to a lion uh what might you need from that lion <laughs> a lot yeah, to convince you I, that I would need a lot from the lion to feel safe. I, I would too. And then if I build a relationship with that lion, okay, that one's all right. But I don't know about this other one, this new one that I met. We're gonna. Have to... <laughs> um, and so I, that's that's one of the the first exercises we go through when um, when one of the bunny rabbits meets my um, new cohort of students for the first time is. So from the perspective of this bunny, she's just been dropped in a room full of lions. Mm-hmm. Um, and really take a minute to put yourself in, in that position and um, think about what you would need. Yes. That's a very interesting thought. So what, what kinds of things do your students do that are well-intended but wrong? Well, I always love this exercise in the cultural class um, because most of my students come up with ideas to introduce themselves to the rabbit. That's their assignment for the day is to introduce themselves to a rabbit in a way that's culturally appropriate for rabbits. Okay. Um, And the very first place they go, and this has happened for four years in a row, the very first place they go is they try, um, they come up with ideas to introduce themselves to a rabbit the same way you would to a dog. Mm -hmm. And uh, in a lot of instances to a rabbit, that's very offensive. Mm -hmm. Uh, um, so to present your hand to a um, in front of a rabbit's nose for it to sniff is um, in rabbit language is, is pretty presumptuous. That's usually what the dominant animal does to present itself to be groomed by a subordinate animal. Um, and so you've basically just sort of sort of said, "Here, groom me. I am. Uh, <laughs> you may kiss the royal paw, kind of." <laughs> Um, so my my two rabbits are very socialized to be um, they they just think um, humans are sort of uh, socially inept rabbits so they're they're pretty amused by our mistakes instead mm-hmm. of being stressed by it um, but we get to examine like okay that worked in one context you you learned that in one context and you thought you could apply it in this context and you had the best of intentions yeah you wanted the rabbit to get a good sniff of you to be able to have some time to get used to you. Um, but even with your 100% great intentions, have unintentionally communicated something that you didn't want to communicate to this animal. 
Yes. And I think that the good intentions is something we all need to be very conscious of because good intentions <laughs> just aren't enough. And we would love for them to be enough. We'd love yeah, to be right, not. but we're not. <laughs> and think about how often we do this with our children, with our friends, with our with our spouses, when they may have needs that we recognize and we wish to respond to those needs. And that's a great intention. That's a great position mm-hmm. to be operating from. But we often respond in ways that are unhelpful. And uh, one of the things I see the most with um, my survivors of, of sexual violence is friends and family members um, saying things that are intended to be helpful, like everything happens for a reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you really think about, okay, I get where, where you're coming from with that. You yeah. really, you help your friend or loved one find meaning. Yes. And that, that is ultimately in counseling where we go, we, we reconstruct the person's sense of meaning. But in saying something like, uh, everything happens for a reason, um, you're inadvertently implying that they, they're supposed to endure this, that they sort of deserved that. Right. Um, and, and often family members and loved ones will go into problem solving mode. Mm-hmm. So, um, okay, what were the risk factors in your situation? Um, were you drinking? What were you wearing? Uh, what kinds of nonverbal signals were you giving to your perpetrator? And the intention is to problem solve because if we can problem solve, then the idea is maybe we can prevent it from happening in the mm-hmm. future. But you're inadvertently victim blaming. Right. So and that, that's an interesting thing that came up years and years ago. I had an aunt who had breast cancer and she said one of the things that frustrated her most um, were all of the questions that people asked where she felt like they were trying to rule out their own personal risk. And she had yeah. she had on the scale none of the major risk factors, you know, not a smoker, real healthy lifestyle, didn't drink, blah, 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 blah. And she said I could just sort of feel like people were just sort of saying like, well, what about this? What about this? What about this? Because we want to feel safe and we're not even really conscious that we're doing it. So if we're doing it to a person who's had some sort of assault and we're like, well, where were you and what were you drinking? In our head, we're thinking, well, I wouldn't have done that. I wouldn't have done that. I, I wouldn't have done that. Yeah. Or, or what can we do to prevent this from happening to you in the future? Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, again, it's a very natural human thing and the intentions behind it are great. But um, the actual message that gets communicating is unhelpful at best and detrimental at worst. It can be harmful. Yeah. And I think very often we do this with our animals. I see people who love their animals, like love, love, love their animals, um, inadvertently exposing them to situations and interacting with them in ways that communicate something that means one thing to a human, but means something completely different to that animal. Yes. Well, honestly, I see that with people too. One of, one of my pet peeves years ago was I had children who did children who did not want to sit on Santa's lap. And I didn't ask them to sit on Santa's lap because they did not want to sit on Santa's lap. So I have no adorable photos of children sitting on Santa's lap because my guys were not playing that. Um, I have sort of interesting photos of awkward children standing a few feet away from Santa with their hands behind their back looking at him talking, sort of. Um, But when we take a child and we plop the child on Santa's lap, we've taken away the consent piece, you know, Mm -hmm. that we have this moment where you're uncomfortable, but in my head, I have a sweet image of what this should be. This is Santa. This is great. 
you should like it. Sit. And we do that to animals all the time. We do it to children all the time. But we also do it to adults in, in more subtle ways. But oh, very, yeah. they're so all the innocent. People don't, you know, like if you say to a person at the mall, you're abusing your child. <laughs> they're like, no, I'm not. I'm taking her to see Santa. Uh-huh. <laughs> yes. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And there's, I think there's a lot of, of cultural expectations that we have that we don't stop to take a minute to think about okay, well, the intention is one thing, but what's the reality? Is it, is it congruent with the, with the intention? Yeah. Um, and I, I think that awareness piece of just being really aware of the choices that we're making with the people that we interact with and where that's coming from um, is the first place to start with having consent be a focus in your um, in your world and moving towards relationships that embrace that culture of consent. Okay. So now tell me that in non-professor speak, if you were going to tell someone one step that they could do next week, like one simple thing you could do next week that could make you more aware of consent and how it's playing out in your life, what would that be? I think the next time, um, you are wanting to convince someone close to you into an interaction to stop, like hit pause for two minutes and think about how is this serving me? And to give yourself permission to have selfish needs because we all do. Um, what am I getting out of this? And then once you figure out what it is that you're getting out of it, think about if it means the same thing for the other party. Mm-hmm. Could it mean something different to them? That's great. So if everybody just sort of hit pause and did that thinking about a couple of interactions in the next week, that would start changing their mindset and making them more aware of how, how consent plays a role in their, in their regular life. Well, I'll, I'll caution that long-term change takes a long time. It's hard. Um, but I know it takes a long time and it takes a lot of practice, but I would say that carrying that sense of mindfulness and being willing to hit pause, um, just committing to doing it, I don't know, three times a day or something, that that will increase your awareness and it could very likely change um, change the emotional flavor of your relationships. Yeah, I think awareness is the absolute key to changing behavior that we do so much of what we do on thinking we're, we're just mm-hmm. on autopilot and that first step is noticing and then after noticing is okay now now what can i do what can i do differently but until we start noticing we we aren't going to change anything we aren't going to do anything and that's that's the struggle <laughs> it is so so i think you know that would be the same for um for if you asked me, how could I change almost anything that anything, right. change is awareness. But um, I, I think really examining our motives mm-hmm. and thinking about who does this serve? Because if it's exclusively you, then maybe you might want to think of a different way to get that need met that includes the other person. That's great. Okay. Thank you. That's really helpful. So, my my last specific question about this is um well it's actually not about this. If your dog could talk, how would your dog describe you? Oh boy, I'm glad she can't talk because I don't <laughs> think she ever 
stop. Oh, yeah. <laughs> She's got a lot to say. Um, hmm, that, that is a good question. Well, you know, I, I have two dogs. I know you do. Sophie and Star. Yes, Sophie May is a uh, retired, uh, now retired um, therapy dog. And uh, I think uh, I think she might have some expletives that I'm not supposed to say on the radio, but I think <laughs> it would be something about higher primates, my butt. <laughs> um, <laughs> Sophie, Sophie perceives herself as the caretaker of all of us uh, feeble-minded creatures. Um, <laughs> And uh, I, I think Star, um, I think if you could get inside of her head, she would have lots of messages of love. I think she would say, I love you a lot. That's great. And I love that they're different because they should be. You have two, you know, like, dogs all have their own personalities just like we do. So different dogs will have different thoughts about how they would describe their people. So thanks so much for coming on today to talk to me about consent. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how listeners could reach you and learn more about your program at Idaho State and what, what would be next steps? Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, well, I'm, I'm fairly easy to find. Uh, so listeners can, um, can find our um, Idaho State University Department of Counseling webpage. Um, and I'll put can- a link in the show notes. Sure. Yes. And um, they can contact me. Um, all, all of the faculty here have um, links to our email. So our direct email on that website. And um, you can email us also for um, information about our um, Masters of Counseling and doctoral um, program in Counselor Ed. But if folks are interested in incorporating animal-assisted interventions in counseling, we also offer a curriculum um, specifically for that in the summers. And that curriculum is designed directly to address the American Counseling Association's animal assisted therapy and counseling competencies. Um, so I'd be glad to, um, you had a hand in developing, didn't you? I did. I did. So that was, um, so, you know, they should go right to the source for this program if they're interested in getting at. Yeah, yeah, and folks um, who are interested in the um, in the therapeutic application of the human animal bond in other ways, I'd be glad to um, to give them some great resources. I can I can send you some of the resources that I um, I often do. recommend for um, and and I would say to really think about um, the human animal bond and human animal relationships are incredibly powerful in healthcare and human services when delivered by a competent provider. But they can also be super powerful in your personal lives with your personal pet if you're mm-hmm. able to stop and listen to what your animals have to say. And so I think you're a great resource. Your podcasts are a great resource. So understanding um, who these critters are that we share our lives with and what the world looks like to them, they have some information to tell us that I think can make us better people. They sure do. And that is the goal of Unleashed, is helping us all become better people. So thanks so much for spending time with me today. I really appreciate it. And we're so glad to have had you on the show. So what do you think? Are you ready to be unleashed? Ready to open up and fully become the amazing person your dog knows you to be? Subscribe to Unleashed. And please visit ColleenPilar.com slash iTunes to leave a review. It helps new listeners find us. And my dog gets an extra treat for each new review. Say thank you, Edzo.